From there, we ended up at our most dangerous rescue, which was down at Gillies Creek. Um, we had several fatalities there of people being swept away, and um, we had a gentleman that got swept into a tree down. He was almost to the James River, but the scary part about this rescue is Gillies Creek goes underground before it goes into the river. So we have to get this guy out of a tree at night as just above where the water before, goes. Before he goes under, goes, through that underground yeah. segment. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson, and today the Firehouse Logbook is on the road, and while it's snowing and freezing rain in Central Virginia, I am, yes, sacrificing myself to bring this guest story to the podcast. The sacrifice on my part is I'm in Longboat Key, Florida, where it's most assuredly not snowing or freezing rain. My guest today is retired battalion chief from the City of Richmond Department of Fire and Emergency Medical Services, who went on to become the fire chief for the Orange County Fire and EMS Department in Virginia as well. Uh, and if your bio on LinkedIn is right, it adds up to somewhere in the neighborhood of 38 years of fire service. Is that right? Yeah, 39 if you count my one year as a volunteer before, although I, I volunteer for 20-some years throughout my career. There you go. So uh, with that, please welcome Battalion Chief and Chief John Harkness. John, thanks, uh, thanks for letting me come down and uh, – Spend some time with you today and enjoy this beautiful view we've got to, to do this podcast. So thanks. You're most welcome. Um, and really, before we get into uh, a couple of the things we're going to talk about is uh, let's talk about your career. You mentioned you were a volunteer for a year before you became, came, got hired in the city. Is that right? Where did you start out? I started off as a volunteer in um, Orange County, Virginia, at the Lake of the Woods uh, Volunteer Fire and Rescue. And um, it's Funny how the whole thing evolved. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. My father was a police officer. Um, my whole neighborhood was either police or fire. Um, I never really had an interest in the fire service until my um, dad was getting ready to retire. Um, we sold our house in Detroit. My brother and mother moved to Virginia in 78 to get him started in high school. And my dad and I stayed up there. And my plan was to stay in the uh, in Detroit, um, I worked in a grocery store, which might sound funny, but back then it was union. I was 17 years old, living at home, making more money than my mother, who was a registered nurse, so you wow. really couldn't tell me anything. And my my brother joined the volunteer fire department when he moved to Virginia, and we started talking about it, and uh, I came down for a vacation in August of uh, 78, spent two weeks in Virginia, and... Um, had a great time and spent a lot of time at the firehouse and um, drove back on a Sunday and on my way to work Monday morning in the Detroit fog or smog, I should say, and uh, high humidity, um, caught in rush hour traffic. I literally made up my mind on the way to work that morning and said, you know what? I'm moving to Virginia and I'm going to become a firefighter. Um, reason I didn't stay in Michigan at the time, the auto industry was going down. Nobody was hiring and... Um, one of my best friends, neighbor, was a Detroit firefighter, and I went to my first fire school in 78, uh, applied um, 
to rich uh in to richmond the beginning i guess that would have been of 79 and got hired by richmond in 80 and uh, the rest is history <laughs> wow so uh kind of the how was it your, your older younger brother or older my brother? younger brother, brother. yeah he, got, he got you into it and yep. got you got you got the bug got the bug they they were one of the first that well they were the second department in orange county to get the jaws of life back then with the old two-stroke power units and you had to change out the cutters and spreaders but uh I don't know. I just I got the bug, and then, like I say, my best friend's neighbor was a Detroit firefighter who rose high up in the ranks in Detroit. Uh, John Reardon. Uh, he was one of my early mentors, and uh, it just took off from there. So, what did uh, where were your assignment? You, were you you were still volunteering in Orange at the time? Yeah, right? I, I volunteered. I volunteered in Orange County until I moved to Madison County and to about 2010. So I volunteered in Orange for 20-some years, even while I was working yeah. with Richmond. But um, went to recruit school, and out of recruit school, I got sent to Fire Station 13. My first year, um, I was in Ladder 5 with the old tractor-drawn ladder. And the, They've got know, those back. Did you see those I, pictures? I know, <laughs> and the funny thing is, you know, back then, Tillon wasn't such a prize job <laughs> I, I had a blast doing it i mean it was fun to till don't get me wrong in the right weather but back then you know there was no closed cabs it was miserable during the snow or uh cold rain but uh um mike carmen was in the tactical squad in in richmond and then he resigned from richmond and w went to you guys went in chesterfield, chesterfield yeah. and had a distinguished career and when he left i slid over to the tactical squad and Became involved in the water rescue. So was the was the water rescue team established when you at that point, or were you kind of yeah, in the, there in the early days? Richmond Fire Department, um, and it was actually the bureau um, many years before that um, was involved in water rescue, probably back from the forties. And wow. you, you know, we had the old like a civil defense truck, um, very primitive equipment. You know, V bottom boats, but. Um, they did rescues back in those days, and obviously this was before the flood wall, so parts of the city used to flood. Quite regular. I think, um, you know, back then not as many people would go to the river because the river was dirty, uh, wasn't developed, where Richmond throughout my career has really developed the, you know, James River Park system, the river access to now, you know, tens of thousands of people go to the river every weekend. Yeah. So did, were they diving back then or had they, were they just kind of surface rescue? We were surface rescue. Um, just to give you an idea, we haven't, we didn't even have Ohio river rescue training. Um, Ohio was the kind of the big right. training, at least on the East coast back then. Um, we brought some instructors in from an Ohio uh, Department of Natural Resources right as I came, um, got involved with the water rescue team. And then I think it was like a year later, um, the Virginia Department of Emergency Management brought in Jim Segrenstam um, from Rescue 3. And we kicked up from what Ohio did. Ohio was a lot of boat-based rescues where Rescue 3... Um, you started doing more swimming-type rescues uh, along with your boat-based tactics. Uh, <clears throat> during that time, we had a lot of drownings, um, and uh, we would always call Chesterfield. And I remember we had a drowning, 
probably it was about 83. Uh, it was a class valedictorian drowned at the pony pasture. And it seemed like every senior, every spring we would have a, like a senior skip day, we'd have a young person drown. And after that drowning, um, we, when I say we, the department decided to start a, a dive team. And uh, I was very lucky. I worked with Captain James Leahy. I was a firefighter, but uh, Jerry Pruden, who's captain of your water rescue team, yep. him and I were great friends. And he helped guide me along as far as equipment and training. And um, next thing you know, probably a year later, we had a, a dive team and we're, we're very busy. Um, I know right after we started the dive team, I think we had like 12 or 13 drownings in, in one summer. Mm -hmm. um, as you're well with the, or aware with the James, it's all about water levels. And yep. that just happened to be a year we got a lot of rain. And when you had a lot of rain, a lot of bad things would happen. Yep. People don't seem to understand the force of the water and exactly. get themselves in trouble. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your career. You went, uh, you obviously got promoted up the ranks. What other uh, assignments did you have along your along the path? When um, I'd been in a right at three years, took the promotional test, and uh, about a year after the promotional test, I was promoted to lieutenant. So I was a young lieutenant, probably about 20, 25 years old, I believe. And I got assigned to, um, to Engine 21. I called the Fighting 21st on Jeff Davis Highway. And uh, that was a great place to work because uh, if you went down the pike south towards Chesterfield, it was all yours and there was nobody, nobody, else. nobody there for probably five, ten minutes. And we had some great firefighters and had a whole lot of fun there. So what, uh, in your time there, I mean, even even throughout your, your career with the city, uh, any big uh, fire incidents kind of stand out as memorable that uh, you kind of reflect back on and go, yeah, I'm glad I was at that one? There's, there's so many of them. Um, I just, I look back through my career, and I call them teachable moments. Um, I was talking to the, a, a good buddy of mine that's um, a recently retired Cleveland firefighter who just moved down here. We we had lunch a couple weeks ago, and we were just talking about some of the crazy stuff that happened to us. And uh, I hadn't been in about six months. We had a two-story balloon frame house on fire, burned up a room or two on the second floor, got up in the attic a little bit. You know, normal bread and butter fire. And uh, we're in the overhaul stage, and then a couple of us were out on the front porch roof it's the stereotypical, you know, porch that goes across the front of the house and we're pulling off the facial boards and that porch collapsed. And when it collapsed, one of the guys hung to the window, one of the guys wrote it down on top, and I unfortunately went underneath of that porch. And when that porch came down, there luckily there was a, one of those old-fashioned slider metal heavy-duty rocking chairs. Mm -hmm. And that kept it from pile driving me into the ground because it, it hit me in the back of the neck. I probably had a con concussion out of it. You know, I got sent to the hospital and all that. But throughout my career, I'll never forget that. And I can't tell you, there was probably four or five times I'd tell people after the fire, I said, don't even go under that porch because you know, we burned up some houses. Very similar. Very similar yeah. many times throughout my career. And I'm like, just stay away from it. And I, I bet you I had at least three or four of those, if people would have been under them, and they just, with no warning, just collapsed. So uh, l little teachable things like that, and then um, the wind-driven stuff. I know we had a fire on Church Hill 
came in in the morning and it was the, you talk about the perfect storm, how when bad incidents happen, it's a calamity of different airs. Um, anyways, we had a, a two-story house, supposedly a person trapped. What just so happened that morning, um, engine eight was um, out, engine 11 was out, I believe engine five was out, which left us engine one and rescue one. And uh, when we got on the scene, um, you know, the guys went in and in the rescue company, we had five people. So I ended up staying outside being the IC and thank God I, I did because nobody was coming. Yeah. So you say rescue, rescue one, that's rescue, a rescue company. It's rescue not a squad. Company, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And we had five people and our primary job was search and rescue. And usually what we would do in a house like that, two downstairs, two upstairs, because we didn't know where the lady was. Engine went in. It, again, it was a, the fire was rolling, but nothing that would really be overly concerning. And then the wind picked up a little bit. And in a matter of seconds, things just changed dramatically. And uh, when you look back at that fire and how the wind impacted that, um, you know, I was trying to get my guys on the second floor. I said, just get out in the porch roof. We've got a ladder coming up. Um, and anyways, it was a really, really close call. Um, it's kind of hard to describe in this short little session, but on a normal day, we would have had more help, but it was, it was just us. Yes. So the, it, the fire actually built up in the house because of the yeah, ventilation the, in the house and the fire. Yeah. Once, you know, they opened the front door cause the fire was burning in the rear. Once we broke the front door, we were creating the flow path. The, the wind was coming Flo, flow path that we didn't know anything about back in right. the days. <laughs> and then, you know, the wind's pushing it towards the front and, and we had some kick butt firefighters on the nozzle and they just, they weren't touching it. Wow. And, um, anyways, it's, but you, you get the gist and then search everything. We, you know, I know there's a big push on Facebook. There's, there's a, I believe, a Facebook page to search culture or whatever. And in Richmond, we searched everything because we found people in, you know, abandoned buildings um, on a fairly regular basis. So um, just search and just make that part of your culture. What what other assignments did you have? Did you wind up uh, getting out of operations at all, or did you spend most of your career in ops? The majority of my career I spent in ops for um, about a year and a half. I was at ESU as a battalion chief. That was our um, EMS and employee health. I did that for about a year and a half and then um, was put back out in the field shortly before I retired. Gotcha. And then you retired and went uh, didn't really retire, retire, but went up to Orange County. Is that right? I went back to Orange County where I got my start because I, I, you know, I told the chiefs in Richmond and I told the the career people and the volunteers in Orange County the the reason I went as far as I did in my career is because of the volunteer fire service. When I got hired by Richmond, um, great place to work, but we weren't very progressive as far as education goes, and I was able through my volunteer experience to be exposed to a lot of different ideas because we had a lot of Northern Virginia firefighters who also volunteered mm -hmm. in the county. So pretty much if it was happening in Virginia, 
you know, we knew about it in Orange because we also had a Department of Fire Programs office, and that really helped me grow. And um, when I came back to Orange, I made it very clear that, hey, the reason I'm here today is because of my time in the volunteer fire and EMS service in the, in the county. What, was the, what do you think was the biggest mind shift from being a operational battalion chief or battalion chief or in operations to making that leap to fire chief? What, do you, what was the biggest jump between the two levels? For me, and, and you know, <clears throat> I'm not sure how people judge me, um, but I think I was able to, working with my department, the board of supervisors, the county administrator, and the volunteer fire um, and rescue um, companies, we were able to accomplish a lot because when I came to Orange County, we were basically an EMS department that did some fire. Um, EMS-wise, we had cutting-edge protocols. We had a medical director that, you know, I'd put him up probably against anybody, Dr. Alberts. Uh, we were doing some really cool things in Orange County, EMS-wise. What we lacked was equipment. And um, I came to Orange County right as the recession was ending. And um, a good friend of mine was the previous fire chief, and it was no fault of his. He had literally cut pretty much anything he could cut out of the budget because I remember meeting with the county administrator and said, yeah, Jamie's done a good job. There's nothing really left to, to cut. But our equipment was falling apart, and because Orange was growing, they were very reactionary as far as, oh, we have a new ambulance, so we're going to get a new life pack. Or, you know, we, you, you get the gist yeah. where we actually came up with a capital improvement plan to rep, uh, for the staff vehicles, the ambulance fleet, any capital equipment. Um, we put in for a lot of grants. We went to all life pack 15s when life pack 15s were relatively new. Um, just as I was leaving, um, we put in for uh, AFG grant and uh, they were successful and uh, replaced all their breathing apparatus. So we did some really cool things. So my, my mindset when I went to Orange, I didn't worry so much from an operational level because, again, they were very strong, whether it be the volunteer fire companies or the career or volunteer EMS agencies. What they needed was equipment. My job was to get them what they needed. And uh, I really enjoyed working with you. Give me a pot of money. How far can we make it go? Tried to educate the employees on decisions, you know, if we need to use an easy I.O. needle, hey, let's by all means use it. But if you can get a standard catheter in for a buck twenty-five versus a hundred and twenty-five, um, and we can save money in EMS supplies, we can do other things or add other equipment. We were able to do that by just that cost savings and getting the employees to buy in, um, whether it be cutting off light switches or not idling the equipment, we were able to put all uh, video laryngoscopes on all the, the medic units just through cost savings, which, again, you know, it's, it's all scalable. Um, it was a smaller department, but that was a big deal. In fact, I think it's much more difficult working um, with budgets in a smaller department than a larger department just because I hate to use the word fluff, but there's those budgets are just so much larger than a there's smaller no, department. No wiggle room in the small no, small budgets. No. So you had to make a big leap from being the, the on the street taking care of the people to taking care of the people through the administration, administration. and budget and 
funding well, and equipment. Which was very satisfying. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, you know, obviously, you know, they didn't fight the amount of fire that um, we did when I was in Richmond. But, uh, you know, it, it was different challenges. And then, you know, trying to develop the – have a sustainability program to develop uh, – people like when I left to develop new offices. I know Chief Nathan Mort, who's there now, he probably hated me when I was there, but I used to, that last year and a half or so, I knew I was leaving. I mean, um, but I drug him into all the different meetings because, you know, we, we're putting in a new radio system there right now, a new public safety building. But he knew the budget inside and out because the last budget, it was basically his budget. <laughs> so a little so, bit of, a little bit of, mentorship and training the exactly. next person up exactly some succession planning that, and uh, uh thank god he got you know he got the job yeah. which he earned and uh you know help just helped him into that position right. i mean bottom line he did it i don't like to ever take credit for what anybody else does but provide him the opportunity to learn and he learned and he's succeeding well congratulations to him for that and even even if he didn't get the job somebody else came in and and w beat him out on the job that per that person you trained is still there to bring the new leader up to speed so they're not nobody's starting from ground yeah. zero so to speak so i think that speaks volumes about um how organizations can prepare themselves for the next generation it's not not letting the new person start from scratch letting them understand where we came from so good stuff Let's let's jump back to some time at Richmond, and uh, one of the one of the topics that have come up from uh, people who've listened to the podcast is they, they really like the city. We, we talked about the VCU fire with two guys that you connected me with, uh, Keith Andes and Sylvester Henderson, who did a great job at talking about that fire back in Richmond. Uh, some of the other incidents that people have given us ideas on, uh, working on getting those on the podcast, but one of the ones was an incident that happened not just in Richmond, but hit all across Central Virginia, and that was uh, Tropical Depression Gaston. You remember that? I, I sure do. It was <laughs> so, my first day back from vacation. You know, welcome back from vacation. Yep. So uh, so let's dive into that one just a little bit, because I think what we're going to wind up doing is talking to you about this, and then uh, I know Mark Berry, who's been on the podcast as well, he was involved in a pretty significant incident in Chesterfield, and there's, I know there's some people in Henrico and Hanover and Goochland and all across Central Virginia who were involved in it. So hopefully try to get all of them kind of compiled together and uh, release them as a group. So uh, tell us a little bit about what happened in uh, Richmond on, uh, it was August 30th, 2004. Well, I, obviously, you know, we always paid attention to the weather with uh, being in the water rescue company. And um, Gaston was supposed to impact us that afternoon, and they were calling for a couple inches of rain. And we knew we'd have some heavy rains, but... Um, you know, there was really no warning from the weather service that this storm was going to stall over top of us. But, you know, again, a couple inches, maybe three tops. So that morning during lineup, you know, hey, guys, uh, you know, storm's coming today. Let's uh, double check, make sure everything's ready to go, you know, fueled up. Um, we know that when we get a couple inches of rain, there's certain intersections in the city that flood. Um, so, you know, we were ready for that, and uh, I guess the rains really started sometime around noon, and probably by 1.30, I'm thinking, uh, we received our first call, and that was for a vehicle stuck in high water off of Bainbridge Street. There used to be um, 
oh gosh, by the old Seagulls um, supermarket. Uh, there used to be a Vidoc, and uh, the bridge has been removed, but there's still a low-lying area, and somebody got caught in there. So we went over there, no big deal, put a boat in, got the person off the car. And from there, we went over to a trailer park off McDonough Street, which is not too far away. And this trailer park is kind of situated in a bowl. And we had literally been there probably a month or two before for um, flooding in the trailer park. So we were familiar with that, got there. Um, yeah, the water was up and uh, started removing some people from the trailers. And uh, anyways, the four guys that uh, were working with me that day, um, Michael Prandy, James Irvin, Roger Walker um, and Billy Dew started taking people out of these trailers and bringing them to what I call shore. <laughs> were, they, were they via boat or was it knee but, deep? But, no, they were. They were basically they were waiting um, a raft out because most okay. of the people had some sort of a physical or a mental disability, and we got a GRTC bus um, en route to that location. I forget exactly how many people we removed out of there, but it was enough where we needed a. A bus. A bus. And uh, during the rescue, I'm noticing, I'm like, man, this water, it's just, it's, it just keeps coming up. And uh, our engine, we parked away from the, we were not anywhere close to the water. And the next thing, when I look, the exhaust of the engine is under the water. Meanwhile, I'm listening to the radio, and there's calls going on throughout the city. And that's when I told them, you know, hey, we're stuck here right now. Send Chesterfield. And uh, Chesterfield came and started doing some rescues down um, by old or my old Station 21 down on the pike. And we continued on. And I'm, I'm trying to get my guys to hurry up. I'm like, come on, guys, let's go. We got to go. We got to go. And, and they're looking at me like I'm crazy because they don't realize what. The water's coming. They don't know the water's it's, right. It's, it's, coming up now we're starting to get current in the trailer park and what happens is in the back side of the trailer park is it's butted up against sims avenue and there's a big drainage pipe that goes under sims avenue and if you get caught in that current you're going and, through the pipe you're going through the pipe and basically you're dead um so i'm worried about that and then i'm also worried about okay we got these other calls we got to get out of here so we got everybody out of the trailer park again. I, I can't remember the exact number, but again, enough where we needed a bus, you know, probably in the 20 some range. Wow. But um, anyways, Chesterfield was operating down on Jeff Davis Highway in the area of Lynn Haven Avenue, and uh, they were recalled to Chesterfield. And I believe it was for the apartment. Um, yeah. Um Jerry and Mark actually talked about that, and they, they had been called into the city for a, another rescue, and I think it was the deputy chief at the time said, nope, we've got multiple active rescues here. You're coming back yeah. to back to Crossland. Right. So there were plenty of work for everybody at this point. Oh, so. no, no doubt. So we end up going down Jeff Davis Highway, and I remember passing Fire Station 21, and probably two foot of water was flowing through the fire station. And there's foam, because that's where we kept our foam. There's foam buckets out in the parking lot. And I'm like, holy smokes, not exact words, but you get the gist. <laughs> and we ended up um, just off of Jeff Davis Highway. I think it was Columbia, and I forget the other cross street. We had a man and a woman. Their car got swept off 
the roadway and they're in somebody's backyard. And what people have to understand is this water doesn't get in these areas. I mean, this is like, this is, catas- a- this is catastrophic, you know. This isn't the the usual late afternoon thunderstorm no. water comes up at this point. You know that. It's something bigger. Probably we had, I'm, I'm guessing at that time, probably six, eight inches of rain. And what you have to remember, this is a city, so everything's asphalt. And the water has nowhere to go. And the drainages that the city does have are, are just overwhelmed. And there's just massive flooding. So anyways... Um, we uh, start attempting the rescue of the, the man and woman trapped on the car, and we used a combination of ropes and a raft to, and some pulleys and stuff and rigged it up to a tree, lowered it down, got them off. It, just, it worked just like in the textbook. And in case I forget to say it, the reason we were so successful that day is because of those, those four guys, mm-hmm. Billy Dew, Roger Walker, James Herbin, and Mike O'Prandy. They just, they operated as a team. Each one of them had their own specialized skills. And what they pulled off that day was no short of, of amazing. But um, from there, we went down to Lynn Haven. There's a, a, a small little unnamed drainage or creek, whatever you want to call it, that was flooded. Multiple homes flooded and um, we're trying to get the people out of them because it's getting to the point now where the water's so high it looks like the homes are going to wash away and it's this is now probably I don't know four five six o'clock in the evening and I forget how many people we rescued there probably in the neighborhood of 10 um, a lot of them again um, had physical um, limp um, physical limitations and uh, just some challenging rescue due to the current and all. And little did we know there was actually a one of the fatalities. There was a pickup truck that had been swept off the road there and was actually in the creek underwater. And unfortunately, uh, a man passed away, which they did not find until the next day when uh, when the water went down. But so did you even know the truck was there? Yeah, we it had was... we had no idea. Nobody saw him get swept away. Um, and it's probably, I, I mean, the, the, unfortunately the gentleman passed away and there would have been nothing we could do. And, um, I would hate to have even tried to, there's, there's just nothing we could have done yep. without, you know, probably killing one of us. So from, uh, that area of, uh, Lynn Haven, after we finished those rescues, it's, it's, it's starting to get towards dusk and we're trying to figure out how to get to downtown Richmond because on Main Street we had a GRTC bus, there was a box van, um, a car up against the pole and um, as Battalion 2 was saying, if you don't get here there's going to be some people that are going to going to die. And so this was, was this in Shaco Bottom? This is in Shaco Bottom. Okay. So you, you mentioned earlier that Richmond now has flood walls. You want to, you want to touch on the fact that the flood walls, even if they had been shut at that time, probably wouldn't have done any good. Yeah. The, the water wasn't coming from the river. The right. water was coming from the city. So the flood walls, you know, there would was kept a, it in the city. They would have kept it in the city and, you know, people were upset. You know, they thought the flood walls caused it. Nothing further from the yeah. truth. When we got to the area in Shaco Bottom, right in front of the Main Street Station, 
is it's old train station. There was literally water coming off the front steps of there three feet deep. And uh, that's three, four blocks from the flood wall. So <laughs> the well flood wall had nothing, nothing to do with well uh, the flooding the flood in, uh, in Shaco Bottom. But just to get to Shaco Bottom from where we were was a feat. Because we had to literally, we couldn't go back down Jeff Davis Highway. Everything going in South Side was cut off. So our only hope was 95. And uh, David Pridgen was a captain at the time. I'm trying to, I think he was on Battalion 3. And uh, he actually went up north on 95 and let us know we could make it. And by So you the, got through before they closed 95 because ultimately 95 got shut down. Probably 95 was shut when we went through because – it, southbound, it was flowing over the Jersey Wall. Wow. And in the northbound lanes, it was deep enough that our boat trailer started floating with the boats on it. And, uh, wow. Yeah, it was. You got through, but you got through. We, we got through. Um, but it brings up a point that for fire departments that want lessons learned is uh, we had a lot of problems with the air intakes on the Quince and the rescue vehicles because most of them were down low. Hmm. So if you drive through standing water, which we encourage people not to, but sometimes you're, you you're forced to, um, they're getting water up in the air intake. So just something so for really, people that are specking fire trucks out, think about where your air intakes are on these point. on these vehicles. Or but, if you're driving the rig, know where your intake is. Uh, yeah, because yeah. that could be a limiting factor. Yep. Um, but once we made it down into the Chaco Bottom, um, right at 15th and Main, we could see everything that was going on, but the water coming down 15th Street was just coming down so fast. There was there's no way we could launch a boat there. Give and, give, give it in in terms of you know some people may know Hollywood Rapids or the uh, the river. Is it was it equivalent to some kind of a class oh, three four rapid? Oh no doubt. Okay, no doubt. It's when you got. To water's edge, and you would you would feel the cobblestones from the old roadway being ripped up, hitting you in the feet and shins. So um, we had to end up going around up on the Church Hill, and um, we launched our boats at about 21st in Maine. And the way we launched our boats is we just backed up right in the middle of downtown Richmond and hit the water on the street. On the street, and again for people that don't know what this looks like it's it was pretty impressive it's not something you would yeah uh, if anybody's interested there's a number of websites out there and i was uh, looking for pictures i could use for this and there's a bunch of them on some copyrighted websites that i can't borrow but uh, we'll probably link a few of them in the description here so you'll be able to get a get an impression of what john's talking about with uh, down in Shaco bottom so so basically we have to take our boats up um about five blocks and uh, every intersection we hit was like, uh, you know, class two or three rapid because of the water running down the hill um, off of Church Hill. And, I mean, it, the water had tremendous velocity. And the water, just to give you an idea, I mean, we were hitting things as we were going down Main Street. We didn't know what we were hitting. But once the water went down, we realized those were automobiles. Cars. Wow. Because everybody got caught in the rush hour traffic. And they had to just abandon they just their, left their cars in the street. They had, they had to leave them in the street. And uh, when we got to the uh, 15th and Main, there's a 
retaining wall right in front of the uh, train station. We used that as our base of operation. And the first rescue was a lady who they tried to stop. In fact, there's a video of her making the turn right in front of the old gentleman's club there. She got about a half a block and the water took her, I think it was an Isuzu trooper, and uh, picked her up and put her up against a light pole because there was an opening um, under the railroad bridge probably a half a block wide, and that's where all the water was running through. So if anything went wrong during our rescues, that's where we were going to be taken, and it's not a place you want it to, to go just because of all the garbage that was being forced into that, that area. And again, just to give the strength of the current, there was a three-story building just south of the rescue that collapsed because of the water running through the building. It blew out the um, delta side wall and the building collapsed. So again, just to give you an idea of the power of the water. And uh, anyways, they made the first rescue, went over to the Azuzu Trooper, broke out the sunroof, brought the lady out through the roof, brought her over to the retaining wall. And then we went after um, two guys that were in a box van Got them out, and then there was about four or five people caught on a GRTC bus, which is your normal, well, I call them like a city bus. And what had happened is the driver, the, the bus wouldn't move forward once the light turned green. And what had happened is a railroad tie had floated down and was underneath her front wheels. So, so it's a wheel like chalk. a wheel chalk and with traffic, you know, that couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. You know, and if you watch the Weather Channel, you can actually see security footage inside the bus the guys going in and and getting the uh the people out of the uh out of the bus but in all my years doing the water rescue but this was by far the most dangerous rescues that we'd ever been involved with and um you know, we thought we were pretty much done when we did this rescue. And um, actually, as we were finishing up that rescue, the um, rain actually started slowing up. And you could actually see the, the water start going down. And uh, another teachable moment before I talk about the most dangerous rescue is um, one of the guys in the company was relatively new. And one of the things in an urban flood situation you have to look out for is when the storm sewers are overwhelmed, the um, manhole covers will blow off. And uh, we were mentioning to uh, the new guy, I said, hey, always hang on to the boat if we're moving the boat half, half hold or something, because if you step and there's a manhole, and about that time one of the guys went Dropped down in the manhole. And luckily, it, it wasn't really draining because the system had been overwhelmed. If it would have been sucking, he would have been- Going through it. Yeah. But then, uh, from there, we ended up at our most dangerous rescue, which was down at Gillies Creek. Um, we had several fatalities there of people being swept away, and um, we had a gentleman that got swept into a tree down. He was almost to the James River, but the scary part about this rescue is Gillies Creek goes underground before it goes into the river. So we have to get this guy out of a tree at night as just above where the water before, goes. Before he goes under, goes, through that underground yeah. segment. And it was to the point where I told the guys, because it was something we had to scout first to see if we could even do it. And I told them, I said, you can do it. 
do it. If you can't do it, he's just going to have, you know, he's going to have to stay there. And uh, anyways, I was talking to Roger Walker this morning about that rescue. And when they got to that guy, um, the guy jumps out of the tree from about 10 feet up into the boat. And like he said, you know, that could have just tore the floor. Yeah. And uh, he still has little flashbacks about that one. But uh, meanwhile, while we're doing this, the other men and women of the, um, the department were doing multiple rescues throughout the city. I know Engine 6 and Rescue 2 did a, a rope rescue off of a bridge. I believe that was at Chamberlain Avenue and rescued a couple people. And then God knows how many people um, were you know, pulled from automobiles. And while we were doing the rescues down in Chaco Bottom, Captain Vitasil, who used to be um, in the water rescue company, him and some members, I believe it was of Quint 13, got one of our other boats and were rescuing people out of the buildings trapped in Chaco Bottom. And um, so just ad hoc, they went and got one of the reserve boats and well, went it, to work. we had another boat the on the trailer. Boat, yeah. um, we had, we carried multiple boats and they were plucking people out of buildings. And um, I think. Our water rescue team, I think we were at either 58 or 59 people we rescued that night. I would say probably <clears throat> 10 of them were what I would call life-saving rescues. Uh, you know, those ones on Main Street, the guy in the tree, um, and, the, you know, a couple of those people in the, the cars. And I'm, I know I'm probably forgetting a couple um, rescues, but um, that was kind of the, the evening as a... And that's an overview, but, uh, and you it, know, 11 inches of rain on concrete is not a good mix. Yeah, it, uh, it happened quick. And uh, just doing a little bit of the research for this, uh, you know, John mentioned that, that shift changed that morning. You were thinking maybe a couple of inches. Uh, one of the sources say that uh, before nightfall, the city of Richmond got 12.6 inches. And I think the bulk of that was somewhere between noon and four, noon and five. Uh, and that's that's the way it hit all over central and Virginia. It, just, it was raining just as hard as it could be, and it never let up. Never stopped. And it just, you know, it, it stalled. But uh, every one of us that was on duty that day, we were we're, we're all glad we were, were there because I, I literally it's probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, you know, I couldn't have been more proud of what those guys did that day. Um, but none of us would ever want to do it again. That's how um, That's how scary it was. And... I can remember when the um, when we were going for that guy um, in the tree, we had a, a second while we were getting things set up for people to call home to see how things were. And depending where you live, you know, if you live a little bit out of the city, there was no impact whatsoever. And uh, it was just amazing how condensed that was. You know, Chesterfield, Richmond. Um, in, in parts of Henrico, it was just absolutely amazing. It's, it was. Um, some of the other notes here, um, uh, 350 homes destroyed, 230 businesses, and uh, nine fatalities associated with And that's just this one source. I think there's some others that might have been uh, associated tangentially to it as well. But uh, it was a, certainly a big event. And um, thank you for sharing all those comments and thoughts just – Again, I want to talk to all the people that were involved. So if we can get together with whoever might have been on Engine 6 and Rescue 2 that, that day. Yeah, I can put you in touch. We'll talk to them, too, and get their story and hear uh, hear how that went um, for sure. Because that's, you know, 
hearing you tell the stories kind of takes me back to what I was doing that day. And certainly, thankfully or uh, not so thankfully, I was in a fire department operations center working that night and, and hearing the things that we were doing in Chesterfield, knowing that we had left the city of Richmond with active rescues, it was it was going to be a quite the long evening. So um, thankfully, all of everybody, it sounds like everybody came home safe. Nobody got injured. No injuries to speak of. I mean, we we had some chemical burns probably from the you know the gasoline because there were literally hundreds, if not thousands of cars that um, from the contaminants in the water yeah. were uh, destroyed during the flood. Um, but no, no serious injuries. And again, you know, I can't, the conditions we were working under are just, were unbelievable. And thank God we had a lot of experience as a water rescue team out in the James, because if we wouldn't have had those skills, we would not have been successful and probably would have hurt or killed somebody. Thankful for that. Well, uh, let's, let's kind of wrap this up. And uh, one of the questions I've, I've asked everybody so far that we've I've talked to about the podcast, particularly somebody who's got, you know, 38, 39 years of service in the fire, fire department and EMS and emergency services. Um, certainly you've got some pearls of wisdom. And if you had five minutes in front of the next recruit class, that's going to graduate tomorrow. What's a couple of pieces of advice you would give them to give them kind of guidance to get them through a successful career? Well, I hit a little bit on the employee health. That's a, a, passion of mine because of, of losing some friends and the way it impacted me, you know, talk to people if, if, if you have a bad incident or whatever, it's a normal reaction. When you see bad stuff, it's a normal reaction to feel some sort of grief, guilt, whatever it might be. The other big one is, you know, clean your gear. I'll never forget. I um, was brand new firefighter in Richmond. Again, I, I, I'd been out in the field maybe a couple months, and a good friend of my parents was a retired D.C. fire captain who was dying of lung cancer. And we were at a 4th of July picnic fundraiser for the volunteer fire department. I can tell you where I was looking, what direction. He put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, Son, wear your breathing apparatus. And for the most part, we wore our breathing apparatus. Our problem was we took them off too soon. The other thing we didn't realize is the dirty gear is not a badge of honor. Um, I can remember going down to recruit school. They had a recruit school going. I'd been in a couple years. My gear looked like crap because we fought a lot of fire. And the guys. It cool. Oh, and they oh, said, was, oh, God, cool, look yeah. at those guys. They catch a lot of fire. And I remember, oh, yeah, yeah, this is, this, you know. But anyways, long story short, when I was 51 years old and diagnosed with prostate cancer, it, um, it wasn't so cool. So clean your gear shower afterwards um, pay attention to your health because this is the greatest job in the world but uh, there is a price of admission and you can reduce the price of admission by taking care of yourself whether it's cleaning your gear showering um, being fit and then just be a, a student of the craft pay attention to these little obscure things we had a Battalion chief. In fact, his son's still working for the city, Wayne Tyler. He came in with uh, me, and he's still he, still working at number 10. Uh, hopefully, he'll be in ladder three for the new tiller because uh, he was one of the originals. But his dad was a battalion chief, probably one of the most respected battalion chiefs. And the reason he was, he was great to his people, but he was a teacher. And he would always teach you little obscure things about 
different things in the city. And I remember um, it was either the Tallheimers or Miller Roads. I believe it was Tallheimers. There were certain windows that you could open, and there was a little marking on the, the window that if nobody ever told you about it, you would never know. So be a student, whether you're the, the, the new person or if you're the senior man or even an upper leadership, share those little pearls of wisdom and make sure they get passed on because there were all these little obscure things he told us about different parts of the city that made us successful later in our, our careers. Yeah. And with the information that's out there nowadays on the internet, <clears throat> pay attention to these different incidents and look at the after action reports and learn from them. You know, that's one thing I love about the New York Fire Department is, um, you know, when they lose a firefighter, um, everybody knows about that fire, what and went why. wrong, and the way they honor that firefighter is by passing on those lessons and hopefully preventing them from ever happening again. So, Sharing the story for sure. Um, well, uh, Chief John Harkness, uh, thanks for sharing your teachable moments with us. It's uh, been interesting hearing some of the stories and catching up because we haven't we haven't caught up in quite some time so it's good to i've got a picture on my ipad i'll show you later that we won't get comments on on the record but uh we'll talk about that one but i appreciate you being here and sharing your stories with us i've thoroughly enjoyed it thanks for having me great and uh just to wrap it up a big shout out and thanks to everybody who downloads and listens to the podcast um you know get, get great comments either through the email address which is firehouselogbook at gmail.com or through Twitter at FD Logbook. Instagram is FD Logbook Podcast. And uh, we're on Facebook. If you just search FD Logbook or the Firehouse Logbook Podcast, you can find it there. And uh, keep in touch with us. And if you're listening on uh, Apple Podcast or Google Podcast or any of those other platforms, make sure you uh, subscribe and uh, give us a rating and uh, give us a thumbs up and make any comments. Uh, we want to get those five stars or the thumbs up. And if it's not, let me know why. I, be curious to see how we can make this better for you folks who are listening out there in the field. And uh, until next time, uh, we'll see you then. Thanks, John. Thank you.